Hello, and welcome to another episode of Outlier Academy, where we decode what the top 1% of iconic founders, renowned investors, best-selling authors, and outlier thinkers have mastered and what they've learned along the way. In each episode, we dive deep to uncover the tools, strategies, habits, routines, and hacks that we can all apply in our own work and lives. I'm Daniel Scribner, and on the show today, I'm joined by Abby Levy, co-founder and managing partner of Primetime Partners, which is a new venture capital firm that specializes in age tech. We're investing in technology around the future of how we age. As you'll hear in this interview, the latest data and statistics around aging are almost too hard to believe. Here are just two data points. As of 2007, it's expected that about half of all babies born will live to be over 100 or become what are called centenarians. And by 2024, it's expected that workers aged 55 or older will represent a full 25% of the nation's workforce, with the fastest annual growth rates among those aged 65 and older. And yet before Primetime Partners was founded by Abby Levy and venture legend Alan Petrocroft of Greycroft and Apex Partners fame, there were no venture firms focused solely on aging and enabling the technologies, products, and businesses will need to support an aging population. In this episode, Abby and I explore the data around aging and the downstream effects of us all living and working much, much longer. From why 50% of all Americans will run out of money within their lifetime to what it means when a full 25% of our workforce is 55 or older. Why a new type of venture firm was needed to invest in age tech and why there have been so few winners in this category to date. We break down Primetime Partners' investment strategy, from why they're focused on investing in seed through Series A rounds, and why they're leaning into incubating multiple age tech companies. And we get hyper-specific about what age tech looks like, from new financial products to help the aging get liquidity on the $9.2 trillion in home equity that they own, to new retirement savings and insurance technology for long-term care. To financial products for managing cash flow as seniors have to stretch their retirement savings for more and more decades. It's a fascinating conversation that's changed the way I think about aging, ageism, and what's needed to make the best of our lives as we live to 100 and beyond. You can find a searchable transcript for this episode, as well as our episode guide with the video version of this interview and a list of articles, books, and interviews to go deeper on aging and age tech at outlieracademy.com slash 136. That's outlieracademy.com slash 136. With that, please enjoy my conversation with Abby Levy of Primetime Partners. Abby Levy, thank you so much for joining me on uh, Outlier Academy as part of our Outlier Investor Series. Uh, I'm so glad to have you on the show. I'm thrilled to be here, Daniel. Thanks for having me. So we're going to spend today talking about uh, the firm that you've been building that I find fascinating, which is uh, called Primetime Partners. But before we get there, I want to start with your background, because you have a very fascinating kind of weaving uh, background in terms of what you did before founding Primetime Partners. Give us a quick sketch of your background and help us kind of connect the dots. Well, if you can connect the dots, that would be wonderful. <laughs> um, but uh, because I, I call myself, I'm an accidental investor. Um, the, uh, my background is I've always worked in business. Uh, I started my career at McKinsey and company, um, after college, uh, and went to business school and then started about 20 years of working with brands always on business building. I worked at brands like OXO and SoulCycle. I was a founder of a business called Thrive Global with Ariana Huffington in the wellness space. But in each of these cases, um, whether I was an advisor, an operator, or a, or a co-founder, um, was always around taking an idea um, and kind of getting from zero to one. 
Um, even in the case of SoulCycle, it was ha- figure out how we build a digital business, aka Peloton, uh, you know, was was coming on strong. So I think that's kind of been the common thread through a lot of my um, experiences working in, with different businesses. Um, so that when I was became, became fascinated with this t- question of what happens to us as we age, what is our role in society? Why does it seem like we plan to age 50, 55? And then there's just this big gaping white space of what you do next. Uh, when I began to look at that, uh, prompted by my father's experience of, you know, prematurely retiring and having 20 years of, of not, not having that professional life anymore. Um, I started writing business plans because that's what I had done for my clients. That's what I had done for the brands I'd worked with. I'd always just written a business plan to create a new product line. If it was OXO or a new business, um, you know, if I was working with Hearst, et cetera. So that's what I did. And I wrote about four business plans, not, let's be clear, very loose, like word documents, dot dashes. And I forget who it was, but a friend of mine said to me, um, you know, why don't you just start an investment platform to fund dozens of these businesses focused on on the aging population, not just these four you've been noodling on. And so that's how I became an accidental investor was that the startup, the right startup for me to build wasn't one of these media companies or operating companies as I was thinking about them was actually an investment platform. So that's how I ended up in venture. And then I was very lucky to partner with my partner, Alan Patrickoff, who, um, you know, Alan has been, you know, f- founded Apex Partners. He is the AP of Al, uh, uh, Al Patrickoff of Apex. He founded Graycroft, which is now, you know, two to three billion under management. Um, and that was also happenstance because I was talking with my good friend from business school, John Patrickoff, told him I was starting a venture fund focused on aging. And he dropped his fork and said, holy bleep, that's what my dad wants to do. And since Alan and I had known each other professionally, he was an investor uh, in mine and Ariana's company, Thrive Global, um, he, you know, it was an easy kind of fateful moment to, to reunite. One of the things you, you've mentioned, I don't know if you've said it so far in this interview, but you've said it before as we've been talking, is that you were always meant to do something in business. Where does that come from? Was it just this compulsion? Was it a fascination with businesses and what they do? Where did that interest come from? Well, I think, first of all, it comes from I grew up sitting around the table with a small business owner. Um, and my dad uh, ran and owned a company that made uh, made stuffed animals, uh, took hmm. book, you know, Paddington Bear and Babar and Madeline and, and made stuffed animals. So I was always around business and I admire my dad greatly for so many reasons, including a lot of the skills he taught me around being a, you know, a small business owner. So I think I was always drawn to business for that. But then I had a bit of a Goldilocks experience. Like I studied languages and government in college. I thought I wanted to go into government. Then I spent some time in the summers there. I was like, maybe not. And I spent time on staff for Teach for America um, because I really um, committed to, um, you know, uh, public education. And, you know, I, I found myself sneaking in. The, the marketplace section of the Wall Street Journal and kind of hiding that I was reading it uh, while working at Teach for America. So I think it's all these little pieces, you know, drove me towards the efficiency that the private sector can have, the innovation, um, and also just the speed at which you can do things. Um, you know, having worked in nonprofit, having been exposed to government, you just really underestimate it, particularly in America, how amazing um you know, our business sector is, it's, it's where, it's where it happens. So mm-hmm. um, I think that's why in some ways, um, it's just a foregone conclusion that I would always work in business. Yeah. 
I want to talk a little bit about the founding story of Primetime Partners. And you already talked about a couple of the elements there of kind of happenstance, knowing somebody that knew Alan Patrickoff, obviously. Um, and uh, then, you know, kind of seeing the aging experience through your father's experience. Were there other things that kind of, uh, I don't know, made you begin to pay attention? Because I know this was an area if you were obsessed about for a long time. What fascinated you and obsessed you about this problem or opportunity? I mean, the data is really, really compelling. I mean, the data that this, an audience of, you can, people demarcate the line of what a senior is, whether it's 65, because that's when Medicare starts, or it's really 55, because that's the average retirement age, you know, or 50 on to 60. So it, it varies. But, you know, the fact that this audience is soon going to be 25% of our population controls two thirds the net worth of our country, three quarters of the healthcare spend, and less than 5% of marketing dollars goes this way. And so the fascinating part to me was it's just ignored. It's we, and, and, and that was the whole point of me stumbling into the space. I had never thought about well, what's my dad going to do after he retires or what is anybody going to do? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the fact is it's just ignored. So to me, the founding of primetime was like, wait a second, this, this is an ignored, like as, as like from a capitalist perspective, as an investor or any business builder, you're all you talk about is where's the white space. Blue ocean ideas, you know, where's the white space? You know, the number of young business school graduates who start with like, well, there's white space here. If you look at the amount of venture funding that's been the balloon of venture funding over the past decade, it's almost hard to find white space. There's like no ideas that haven't been uncovered yet. And then you look at the, uh, at the space of aging and longevity. And I was literally, I was surprised. It's like, are you serious that there's actually nobody focusing on this? It just seemed shocking. There were more pet businesses, more pet startups and dog startups than there were startups focused on aging and longevity. And so to me, there was a bit of indignation, but more importantly, was just saw like, you know, the dollar signs on, you know, the cartoon character with the dollar signs rolling around in their eyes. I was like, cha-ching, like there's, there's so much to do, so much to build. Let's get going. Um, and so that was really a huge impetus was just the, the, the magnitude of the opportunity, the TAM across healthcare and fintech and prop tech and consumer. And, and that was the thought behind primetime, which is, you know, not to, to be a horizontal fund focused on an audience and their needs, irrespective of the way that most venture funds have now developed, where the partners and the teams are so vertically focused around industry. Um, and that strategy, I think, has played out well so far in our past two years since we launched um, and has also been really gratifying to build that expertise horizontally. Yeah. I want to read something that's on your website just because, you know, the four stats you mentioned there, when you read off or list off those four, they clearly don't add up, especially the getting then to the 5% of marketing dollars dedicated to this massive market. But on your website, and I don't typically do this, but I'm just going to read this because I think it's a great encapsulation of, of your focus and why it's important. There is a seismic global shift in the composition of our population. The global population age 60 plus numbered 962 million in 2017, and is projected to double by 2050 to nearly 2.1 billion. Older adults control 60% of the U.S. net worth, not to mention trillions that health plans and our government spends on this segment. As an investment platform, Primetime Partners identifies and builds the businesses that provides the products, services, and experiences to satisfactorily address the needs for this 25% of our population. 
One of the questions I wanted to ask was, you know, if you kind of put on your cynical hat, what are there any good reasons for why people haven't invested more into age technology startups? Because, you know, one comes to mind, which is I could imagine just someone saying, could you ever build a big, profitable, interesting business focused on this segment? What are your thoughts there? (laughs) So, you know, with humility, I'll say, you know, I'm not the first investor to have to get excited by the data. When we started, I mean, most of our peers in other venture funds had a bullet point uh, in their investment themes around the the gray tsunami. Or, I mean, the data is the data. This demographic shift is not a surprise. Um, and so, you know, it's not that investors haven't been looking. The biggest constraint has been there haven't been founders building businesses or big enough businesses. Um, and so the, the quantity and caliber of the startups has been low. I, I've talked to a, a whole bunch of people, and I think there's consensus around that. What's different that I don't think we appreciated the timing of was COVID. Um, and COVID obviously would never wish to, 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 make, to have COVID have happened. But what it did do is it opened the eyes to hundreds of entrepreneurs of how much needs to be built for an aging population. Because every person in our country started becoming a caregiver, whether it was helping your parents or your grandparents find a vaccine, get delivery of of their groceries, um, use FaceTime or some sort of social media app to stay in touch with people. Um, We all became caregivers. And it was the first time that you couldn't look at a newspaper without the front page talking about nursing homes. There was just this overarching shift in attention to aging. Um, And that sparked, and I can, you know, I can see it in our numbers of deals that that we saw, sparked entrepreneurs for the first time coming out of the woodwork to work on these issues. Um, You know, we talk about the healthcare side, but 50% of Americans are run out of money because we don't have retirement savings, enough retirement savings. That also came to light. Um, And so we had this kind of, you know, fermentation of issues that are coming to light. And for the first time ever, I think we have a crop of entrepreneurs that are really tackling them in a, in a significant way. Um, and entrepreneurs who are serial, not just you know new folks with a nice idea, but serial entrepreneurs who have turned their attention to this issue. So I would say the number one constraint of why there haven't been big businesses built in this space has been just a constraint of, of entrepreneurs building in the space. Um, and during this time, a company like Papa you know, has gone from zero to, you know, evaluation of basically being a unicorn in the space. I mean, there's, there's been a lot of activity, but I would say we're just at the beginning, Daniel, we are just getting started uh, in this ecosystem. Um, And so um, there still are a lot of barriers. But the one of the ones that I think has been dismissed is this issue of, you know, older adults don't use technology. And with 77% of older adults using telemedicine during COVID, 77% of older adults, I mean, I just, it's a staggering number. Like to say that who would have ever thunk it, that you would have this population using video to talk to their doctors. It's changed everything. One of the questions, uh, and it's a bit of a tangent from what we've been talking to, we're going to come back in a second to um, kind of the thesis and, and your approach and, and some of what you're investing in at prime time. But one of the things I was curious about, you know, you talk about these staggering stats that just make sense. 
one of the things I wanted to ask was what it was like going and raising funding. Because to, to your point, you know, there are a bunch of generalist investors that maybe have this as a sub bullet. And then here you and Alan Patrikoff are basically saying, we're building a venture platform that's completely focused on this. We're going to be experts in this area. Did that resonate with people? Did people have a lot of questions? What, what was it like going out and raising for this fund? Well, just to set the context, um, we started fundraising in June of 2020. So basically <laughs> two, two months into the pandemic. Um, and at, since I'm the general partner, uh, the lead general partner, you know, I'm a first time fund manager. And so we intentionally did not go talk to institutional uh, sources of capital uh, for, again, because timing, because of, of first time fund manager. And then lastly, um, because we only needed $50 million. We were actually, we were starting out with, we actually, our target was 35 for fund one. Um, and so given that, um, I think so that that's just to set the, set the, set the tone of then what kind of fundraise it is. So in that sense, then it is, um, high net worth individuals, family offices, and turns out some strategics. Um, and so when you're talking to those folks, many of whom are 50 plus, there was not a single person who didn't nod their head and say, yeah, like, why hasn't this been done before? So the the data speaks for itself, the logic of a horizontally focused fund, all of that made sense. I think the only piece that we got a couple of questions on, which is really was your question, Daniel, which is, there are no proof points, there are no <laughs> other than care.com, and GrandPad, which got bought by Best Buy, there were like two or three examples of successful exits in this space. And so, you know, what we said was that we're at the beginning of this category and, you know, it will be a long road. You know, we're two years in, we've had a lot of step ups. Everything is, you know, everything in venture has been up and to the right over the past two years. So I cannot take credit for it. Um, but, you know, so everything's going well, but it's a long road. So I think that's where I think the um, intellectual and emotional alignment was there with our LPs. Um, and then I think, you know, for a couple of our LPs that are nursing home operators and hospital systems, I think it's been a very symbiotic relationship. Um, and uh, that has been super easy because they understood the opportunity and they wanted to see the deal flow. And that's what we've been delivering upon is really being able to show our strategic uh, investors, here's what's going on in this landscape. You know, we've looked at 900 businesses in the past few years. We're, you know, seeing 10 companies a week. Like, you know, we're just, we're just sucking it in, sucking it up and then being able to share it. Yeah. I was just going to say the other thing is if you're going to go fundraise, having a partner like Alan Patrickoff is amazing because he's been doing this for 50 years. <laughs> And his ability to say, okay, that didn't go so well, or, you know, you don't win them all. And just recognizing that, especially for someone like me, who's kind of used to a pretty high marks and success rate, that you have to just bear with it when you fundraise, that there's just going to be some conversations where it's just not in their investment theme, like, mm -hmm. you know, where they don't do venture, or now's not the right time. And so you have to be okay with some no's. Um, I'm typically not okay with no. And Alan <laughs> had the experience set to kind of temper me a little bit to say, that's normal. There's going to be a lot of no's. 
That's great advice. I, I want to ask about two questions of the strategy, the, uh, the strategy of how you're deploying capital and, and what you're doing at prime time. And one of those is, you know, you're relatively early focused or you are early focused. You're doing seed through series A. I'd love to, if you could talk a little bit about why that's, that's interesting. Um, and then the, the second piece would be incubations. You know, there are incubations are not necessarily a new thing for venture funds, but it's interesting to me that that made sense. And you talked about some of these business plans. I'd love if you could flesh out both of those. Yeah, I mean, I think they kind of go hand in hand, which is because this industry is is just being born in the sense, I believe it is, um, that going early stage makes sense because that's where you've got the most volume of opportunities. There isn't as many great quality later stage deals to do. And so one of it was based on supply. Mm-hmm. The second reason for staying early is just based on me, um, you know, where I've my experience set comes to bear. Um, is in zero to one. Um, and I think we're able to be really helpful uh, to our to our companies. We now have 26 portfolio companies. You know, we're very much in the weeds on introductions and strategy and PR and visibility and, and, and all of the things that I like to work on. So I think part of it's just what we're good at. You know, we have, you know, Ray Jang who works with me, you know, he's a former founder himself. Like we're just it's kind of a good place to be. Um, and then the third is just pricing, like to compete in the later stage rounds with this pricing, particularly when we started the fund, when digital health through COVID just ballooned and FinTech was ballooning, you know, I, I had sticker shock. Um, and so being a $50 million fund, you know, it's just, you, you, that's where you play. In terms of the incubations, I mean, they're the best, not kept secret, but they're the the best investment ever, right? Because effectively, prime time, we have two incubations right now. Um, you know, one's, you know, you basically get founder shares. So you trade your sweat sweat equity for, you know, a, a sizable equity piece in these new businesses. And particularly for us, because we came to the table, understanding the white space, knowing where the white space was. And if we didn't see a company that was satisfying that white space, well, let's go find a venture studio partner. In each case, we're working with two venture studios. We don't have a team internally. We're a four-person team. We can't incubate something ourselves. We went out and we found two venture studios to work with um, who st- have the lion's share of the economics, but we're still effectively co-founders with, with decent founding economics. So it's great for our LPs. It's great for, I think, us intellectually. Um, and you know, time will tell if it, you know, ultimately returns the way we think it, they will. Mm-hmm. I want to ask one more question, which is, you know, you t- so you've talked about primetime partners as being a-, a platform and this idea that you're horizontal, so you can invest across uh, disciplines, across industries, which makes sense given the thesis. Um, but, you know, one of the things you said in a previous conversation is that the major, meaning the thing that you're, uh, you know, basically the moat or the main skill that you're bringing to what you're doing is that you are becoming experts in consumer behavior of an older population, which I find fascinating. W- talk to us a little bit about what that means, what you've observed and some of the things you've learned when it comes to that consumer behavior. Absolutely. I mean, I think the thing that we've and maybe it's because my background is in marketing that I tend to, f- to focus on this, but our, our portfolio of 26 companies is a mixture of D2C, B2B2C, B2B. Uh, but at the end of the day, there's an older adult user um, in the mix. And so a couple of things that we've learned that we've been able to share across the portfolio, um, content really matters. This audience mm-hmm. makes considered purchases. It is 
you know, not influenced by t- what, who, someone on TikTok or Instagram, they're going to research and learn of themselves. So content marketing really makes a difference. Affiliate marketing, trusted brands make a difference. Elements of, of micro-segmenting. So, you know, I've said a gazillion times, when there's a, a founder that comes with a pitch that talks about seniors as this monolithic group, it's like saying the audience 18 to 45 is one group. Like what, what founder would ever start? We're targeting 18 to 45, period. Like no sub-segments, no target personas, nothing. So, you know, the, the, as we age, we only get more idiosyncratic. Um, and so figuring out who the micro-segments are within an aging population is really, really important. Um, I think other things we've learned, really tactical. A lot of founders want to target the adult child. They say, well, we'll get to the adult child and they will influence the senior. And I always ask that person, does your grandmother buy what you tell them to buy? Does your parent do what you tell them to do? No. no. So why do you think that you're, by targeting an adult child, you're going to build a big business? Like if maybe if the senior has dementia and needs, a, it really is under the care and supervision of adult child. So I think the, the reason I'm bringing up these examples is we're seeing in practice through our portfolio, things that are working and not working. And I, we really do share those insights um, because stuff that's happening on D2C, what one of our businesses is doing in fintech on Facebook has applicable learnings to something that a payer-focused business is doing around enrollment and engagement uh, for a healthcare product. Yeah, even just your note on you know, how you market and acquire customers is very, you know, even just in the couple of glimpses you've given there, it is very different than if you are running a a business that's targeting millennials or Gen Z or Gen, or Gen Y. Um, so, so it makes sense that one, there's unique expertise there. And then two, that, you know, it, it, it's basically like going from zero to one in a whole new form of marketing and a whole new form of advertising, user onboarding, all of it. One of yeah. the questions I wanted to ask about was if we bubble up for a second, um, and just kind of, I, I think it's helpful for people. We've talked about some of the stats around aging, but as I was preparing for this, I kept trying to get to like, what is the big idea? And the best I could get, and I'd love you to help push back on this and shape this, is that really, you know, we're going through a period where, as you said before, you know, we're going to live a hundred plus uh, years, or we're, we're getting to a point in civilization where many, many, many of us are going to live more than a hundred years. That has an enormous amount of ripple effects. That means that we're going to be retired for longer. So we need more savings. That means that we're, you know, we need meaning in our lives. So we might want to work when we're older. What do those employment opportunities look like? You know, there's health, there's insurance, there's entertainment, there's a bunch of things there. Talk a little bit about that, you know, what living to 100 changes and what you think are some of the most staggering knock-on effects of just people living longer. And then we can go into some of the areas. I mean, it's hard because sometimes I feel like I'm like the Grim Reaper <laughs> at cocktail parties because <laughs> I'm like, all, you know, talking about all these issues of what's missing. But I think you hit upon a, a bunch of them. I mean, you've got within financial products and services, you know, there's our, our whole financial services industry is focused on asset accumulation, um, work hard, spend more, use credit cards and mortgages to spend more. And then the back half of your life is asset decumulation. Um, and there's not a lot of product services or t- conversation around asset decumulation. Another really good example is that this is very focused, but our OB-GYN, our obstetrician gynecologists are trained on fertility at birth 
Hmm. Less than 5% are trained on menopause. Wow. We have, you can go literally category by category, take housing. Housing is literally like bigger, 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 bigger. And then once you can't live alone, you have to go to senior housing. There's nothing in between. There's nothing in between living by yourself and living in a, basically a hospital-like environment. There's a very little in between. There's only 2 million senior living beds in our home our entire country. Like we don't have that white space of housing. We don't have that white space of financial planning. We don't have that white space of femtech. We don't have that white space in, 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 in employment opportunities. We have internships and job training for young people, but what happens, you know, with off-ramping uh, and that whole question. So I guess what I'm saying is the opportunity is in this gap between 55, 60 and death, what is what are the businesses that support what that experience is? Mm-hmm. Um, and it ha- it, they, it's across every aspect of life. The only place I've seen some really good work is some of the dating apps for seniors are fantastic. So we have figured out date. We have definitely figured out dating. <laughs> the most important. That's always that's the tip of the pyramid, and then we'll work our way down from from there. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You have to go I'd on Medicaid, to- but you can date. Great. Great. Well, it's good to know yeah. we've got that solved. I'm sure there's uh, exactly. a lot of happy dating seniors. I, I want to zoom into some of the problems because I think one, it's interesting to explore really specific examples. And it also, I think they're all visceral. One of the ones, you know, you have this amazing paper, um, I believe it's available on your website called the prime take of, on 2022, the collision of age tech and, and fintech, uh, which is wonderful, which basically talks about, here's all the here's all the issues that are popping up that are unsolved around living longer and what that means. And then here's the kind of intersection of where these things show up in financial technology and innovation. And one of the ones is the stat you brought up earlier that uh, is is Grim Reaper-ish is the fact that 50% of people will run out of money while they're retired. And it's an interesting example because it seems like a lot of, sure, some of some part of solving that can definitely happen once you are retired, let's say 60 plus. But a lot of that maybe has knock-on mm-hmm. effects for what you do when you're 30, 40, 50. And you brought up this idea of Alto IRA and in you know more diversification, investing in alternatives. Talk a little about that example and some of the interesting things you're seeing around how people are trying to solve that problem. Absolutely. I mean, listen, we we have a, the an issue, you know, just breaking it down. I mean, as humans, we we want to maximize today. We don't want to plan for tomorrow. I mean, that's it's just kind of a, a instinctual reflex that we all have. Um, and the single best thing that we can do as younger people. Um, is to maximize our 401ks or any retirement plan because it is the only free money we get. Um, it is free money in the sense that if your company matches you, it's tax deferred. It is literally the best thing you can do to plan for your retirement. Um, and uh, 401ks are woefully, um, first of all, a lot of people don't know, a lot of employers don't offer them. Uh, because they're small um, and a lot of people don't take them up on it or, or, or only put what they think they can afford today, not thinking about the value of that money there versus you know being spent on Starbucks or whatever else. Um, and so I do think in terms of the company is we're invested in two businesses in the retirement space. We're looking for more. One is called Penelope. It is a 401k focused on micro businesses and, and they're launching a solo kind of for people who are independent consultants and freelancers and this and that. 
but there is absolutely, uh, everyone should have a retirement plan. So that's kind of point one. It's like, you know, you, you can't talk to any economist or academic who doesn't say, get, have a retirement plan, max it out. Then within that, we're invested in a business called Rocket Dollar. Um, traditional 401k fund administrators like Fidelity, uh, T. Rowe Price, Vanguard, um, they legally are not, they offer you mutual funds. They are not allowed to offer alternative investments. Um, now, obviously, the, the, the bottom crashing out on crypto, you know, has made many people skeptical or nervous of alternative investments. But there's a lot within that. Alternative investments includes second homes and users' real estate property, think Airbnb. It includes, you know, as I said, real estate includes art. It includes in being able to invest in venture funds or other things. And so Rocket Dollar is a safe way for you and a legal way for you to be able to put retirement assets in that tax-advantaged state uh, into alternative assets. And so those are just two examples of investments we've made that are really trying to encourage people to put to save more um, and to do that through tax-advantaged um, vehicles like 401ks. Yeah. I think it's also fascinating just to think that obviously with your thesis, you're invest, you know, these, it's not like the primary users of these are people that are 60 plus, but you're no. going downstream and you're using the lens of, of what you're seeing and what you know to be true to then go and invest in things that should exist. And they need to get many, many more dollars that will likely get money from you that they won't get from other venture capital funds, which is really interesting. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and listen, we had that, you know, one of the nice things about being a small fund with an LP base that's very supportive is, you know, we didn't say to them, we're only focused on businesses 65 plus. We said, this is, you know, what we're focused on. And then, you know, there, we have two investments in menopause related companies, you know, menopause affects women 35 to 55. So is that a, a senior issue? You know, yes and no, but women's health is ignored post childbearing years. So, you know, feminine care is. And so, you know, that's our gateway into it. So I think we're in places that we think ultimately impact this audience. Um, and, uh, but we, you know, we, we definitely have said no to things when they're too off theme. One of the other areas, um, the specific example cited in that paper that I really like that I want to talk about for a moment is employment. And, you know, the stat that you have inside here, it's basically this idea of what do you do when you're, when you're retired? And I think for anyone that has older parents, one of the things that you observe is potentially them, one, not knowing what to do with themselves when for the first time in their lives, they're not working and they don't have somewhere to go and exert themselves. And I think another thing you learn is how much of all of our identities, for better or worse, are entwined in what we do for the world. You know, it, like mm -hmm. we going, yes, employment pays us. It's also a way, it's part of our identity. It's part of how we're giving back to other people. One of the stats you have inside here is by 2024, workers age 55 and older will represent 25% of the nation's workforce, which is staggering. <laughs> uh, with the fastest annual growth rates among those age 65 and older and one third of adults, you know, claim they plan to work longer as a result of the pandemic. So just to repeat that, 25% of the workforce after 2024 is 55 plus. What are you seeing there and what companies are being built that excite you? I have to be honest, this is an underrepresented area. So if there are any founders listening to this, please reach out to me. We have some ideas of what needs to be built. Um, but I think a couple of things are happening. One, I think it is actually really great that on the policy side and the advocacy side, there is a lot of 
academic and foundation work being done on intergenerational workforces mm-hmm. and really thinking about how to rebrand, you know, historically, you know, for a lot of larger companies, you know, there were age, age limits, you know, you got pushed out when you were a certain age, uh, because, you know, they wanted to make room for the younger generation. And so there was this juxtaposition of it's them or me. Um, and that culture of, I need, you know, Mr. Smith to retire so I can move up has created this tension that doesn't need to be there because Mr. Smith, by the way, can and should be maybe off-ramped in a way that suits his desire for retirement and can be a great addition to continue the expertise and the know-how. And by the way, you know, the workforce that's now 55 to 65 is all, I wouldn't say t- uh, digitally native, but they've all been in the workplace for the past 15 years, 20 years with technology. So it's no longer that they're dinosaurs, putting in air quotes. It's, it's, so that's no longer an issue. So I think that the, the startups, you know, we're not seeing startups yet, to be honest, because the, a lot of this is around policy and HR approaches for how to uh, retain and, and, and maximize an, an aging workforce. The things we have seen, and we're, frankly, we're working on one as one of our incubations, um, is how you introduce older adults to the creator economy, the gig economy. Um, And so it's not surprising that a disproportionate share of Airbnb hosts are 45 plus um, because it's a really great gig job for someone of that age. Um, And, you know, there are other gig jobs. And so, you know, being a creator is actually a really good gig job. (laughs) It can be for the right creators. So we're working on something that that helps older adults become creators. But um, there is not a lot in this space yet. So I wish I had a rosier picture for you. I want to talk about housing, uh, and that'll be the last kind of maybe specific example that we'll get into. But the reason mm-hmm. is just because uh, it, it is obviously a massive problem. You know, you go through your life, accumulate, you know, as you talked about accumulating assets, one of the biggest assets that you have is your home. I think a lot of people struggle with this idea that, well, that's where all my net worth is. And obviously, now I'm comfortable, I don't want to, you know, I don't necessarily want to enter a new phase of life. And so I think housing is naturally difficult. One of the examples I was going to share is, you know, I, uh, what I've started to see in the last couple of years that I found really exciting is 55 plus active communities. My parents yes. recently, maybe five years ago, went through the transition where they sold their house, they pocketed all the equity, they can now invest that. And now they are back, you know, kind of weirdly to paying rent, but they're doing it in a 55 plus active community. What, what are you seeing there that's exciting you? What do you hope that you see there soon in that space? I am obsessed with this space. I think it is so smart, not just from a financial management perspective, to your parents' example, but from a socialization and community yeah. and fun and vibrancy. And to me, it's like going back to college, like to not view it as a, as a waypoint on the way to assisted living, which is the way it had always kind of been mm-hmm. presented in some ways that it was a that to really make it aspirational and and thank goodness for the people that, you know, licensed Margaritaville, the brand to senior housing to kind of change the narrative on it. And, you know, people joke, but the largest CCRC or what that's what called kind of an independent adult retirement community is called the villages in Florida. And, hmm. you know, that place is a waiting list to get in because it's just, it's, you know, a huge community of people who all want to enjoy these years so the types of, of companies we've seen 
Um, there's a company called Upside Home um, that is helping t- turn apartment buildings with, a, you know, effectively individual units to have some of that infrastructure that makes it feel more like a retirement community so that people can downsize into apartments. Um, there's a company called Sunbound that helps you manage the downsizing of your home and kind of there's so many transactions and so many fees and so many things. Um, and there's, you know, I think we're going to continue to see senior living operators, uh, develop hybrid models. Um, there's some that basically offer their services into the community. So for people who want to age in place to be able to do that. And then lastly, you know, we're invested in a business called Fraction. It is a way to tap into your home equity. I think increasingly there will be this shift in narrative that your home is just uh, your piggy bank. And as opposed to the shame of I have to sell my house and that is always historically with reverse mortgages and things like that, it's always seemed like a predatory, I have somehow failed and so I have to sell my home in order to make ends meet. It's just part of your balance sheet and you're liquidating it as you need the cash. And so the more that we get comfortable talking about asset decumulation, not as a sign of failure, but as a sign of longevity um, and just a part of longevity, uh, the better off we are. And businesses like Fraction, that's how they're approaching the conversation with, with an aging population to say, you should just sell some of your home equity now so that you can live the life you want. Makes sense. I, I want to ask a, a big question to kind of wrap all of this up, which is, you know, when you, if you're wildly successful at primetime partners, which, which I think you will be, uh, and you know, you talked about having, I think you have three kids. What do you, what do you hope is different in your kids' lives when they get to be 50 and 60? That is not true today. You know, what by funding and by building primetime partners, what hope do you, what changes and what do you hope changes for future generations as they think about aging? Well, I do hope ageism changes so they don't treat me, <laughs> so they don't treat me like an, <laughs> That's like, an in, like I'm an invalid just because I turned seventy. Uh, no, but I, I do think I've never been asked that question. That's probably one of the best questions I've ever been asked, Daniel. Uh, and I've done a lot of podcasts. Um, a couple things. One is I hope it put, takes a little pressure off of people in their twenties, thirties, and forties. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's not about getting it all done in such a short amount of time. I think it's about, you know, these chapters um, that we have in our life. And so I hope that that creates a little more breathing room and less stress uh, for my kids. I hope that they have multiple careers. I think that that's, you know, there's people talk about the third act, you know, that there's, um, you know, some great books being written about Right now, you know, there's a book called Elderhood out on the market, which I love. I love Susan who wrote it. Um, and you, you, know, you should really take a look at it. Um, but I think that the, hopefully they'll have multiple careers. And then lastly, I really hope that preventative healthcare, I mean, I, we haven't talked much about healthcare in this, in this conversation, but most of the diseases mm-hmm. are uh, behavioral. Diabetes is the most prevalent behavioral disease in our country. Um, there are things you can do to delay Alzheimer's. You're going to get it. If you're going to get it, you're going to get it, but you can delay it. What we eat, how we exercise, how we sleep, you know, that, that, that you have to change that in order to have a, a longer health span. So I do, I just gave you a bunch of different things, but I hope we have a society that isn't plagued by obesity and diabetes because 
people want. They're excited to live longer and are therefore yeah. making trade-offs when they're younger to enjoy a longer, healthier life. Yeah. The two things I love that you brought up there is one, easing the burden, just taking stress and pressure off people in their 20s and 30s. Because you know, if we are going to live 100 years, then God forbid, people try to treat the first couple of decades as if you know they need to achieve everything and, and reach the milestones and goals that they've set in the first part of their life. And, you know, I think just that last piece uh, around, you know, being able to have meaning, being able to find meaning, being able to carry through that through your life and have multiple chapters. I want to end by talking a little bit about um, lessons that you've learned. You know, I know Primetime Partners is your first time being an investor. What I guess the things I'd be curious to know are what has surprised you the most about being an investor uh, versus being an operator. And then the second is just any big lessons learned. And that could be things you might share with someone else who's thinking about starting a fund, or, you know, things that just strike you as you think back on the last couple of years. I'll start with the second question first, I think in terms of lessons learned, having strategic LPs, and people who are interested in the problems that your companies are solving as investors, as advisors, it changes how quickly and easily you can help the portfolio. Um, and I think that it's funny when I started this, you know, one of the founders, when I was talking to, said to me, All venture funds say they are, and she went in air quotes, value add that it's just kind of like what everybody says, we're value add. And I think what I've learned is that our greatest value, other than insights, you know, industry insights and things we're gleaning by, you know, consumer insights, all that, is because we are staying very close to the strategic partners, customers, et cetera, that our companies need. And I hadn't experienced it. It makes sense, it's common sense. But if you have the opportunity to take five small checks from people who can be strategic or one large institutional check, take the five small checks. Mm -hmm. You will get much more from it. Um, I think the other, another thing that I've learned along the way is on team. I've got a great team. Um, and that is not just because they're smart and we, we, but we're all very entrepreneurial. And I think that's the piece is finding a team that, you know, we had a lot of choices on who to hire, you know, in terms of a fit. And I think the fit is is really aligns with our, our vision and our mission. But, you know, the bright, shiny object of, you know, pedigree and this and that isn't always the right choice. The right choice is having the right um, cultural fit uh, that that issues your values, especially because we're a big, our, our whole category is based on the value of aging, you know, older people matter. It's a value-based industry, <laughs> In terms of, of uh, so, you know, I think that was another lesson learned. Um, and then I think the, the third piece on lesson learned is um, that I had to learn the hard way is we have to get better at saying no faster. We were just talking at lunch today, our team, we fall in love with ideas, but at the end of the day, it's the founders that are going to make all the difference. So you can have the best idea. And people have always said to me, would you rather have a B idea and an A founder? or an A idea and a B founder. And I used to pump the question saying both. And I think what I've learned is it's better to have a B idea and an A founder. Um, and I think most people in venture will say that, but because I'm such an ideas person, I didn't want to let, I, it's hard for me to let go of the ideas. And I think I've learned the hard way that we, I, we have to get better and faster at letting go of the ideas we love if it's a B team. Yeah, that's very well said. 
that's the perfect note to end on. Thank you so much for coming on, Abby. This has been so much fun. Um, and I've learned a tremendous amount. I mean, my hope for this interview is that people listening, one, it's a window into something that's deeply underdiscussed, <laughs> which is the fact that we're all aging, we're all living longer, and we need to be thinking about that more and, and be spending more time and energy and effort improving that part of our life. But I think it's an, also a great example of someone taking a leap and, and going from zero to one in a brand new space. So thank you so much for joining me, Abby. Appreciate it. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you so much for listening. You can find a searchable transcript for this episode, as well as our episode guide with the video version of this interview and list of articles, books, and resources to go deeper on aging and age tech at outlieracademy.com slash 136. That's outlieracademy.com slash 136. And you can learn more about Primetime Partners at primetimepartners.com. For more from Outlier Academy, follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn, subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash outlieracademy, and visit outlieracademy.com for more incredible investor interviews profiling NFX, Graycroft, Pantera Capital, the Compound Kings ETF, Dry House Capital, and many, many more incredible investment firms. We'll see you right here with a brand new episode next Wednesday.